Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Owen Flanagan, the author of the new book, How to Do Things with Emotions. Owen is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. Owen is also the author of The Geography of Morals, The Problem of the Soul, and many more. In the conversation, Owen and I discuss philosophy and emotions, the study of anger across cultures, how to let go of deeply held emotions, making sense of shame, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into the topic of emotions as much as I did. Let's welcome the wise and gracious Owen Flanagan. Well, Owen, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much for the invitation, and it's nice to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, How to Do Things with Emotions. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask, what initially led you down a, a path to a career in philosophy? Yeah, great question. Um, so I was... Um, Raised in the New York metropolitan area in the uh, in the 1950s and 60s, in a uh, my father had been a veteran in the Second World War, and both my parents were very religious. So I was brought up in a Roman Catholic um, household. Right from the get go, I was very interested in what uh, were sort of standard theological questions. You know that kids maybe either always or somewhat curious about, you know, Aristotle says philosophy begins in wonder. I wondered a lot about things, about things that I heard about in Catholic school and from my parents about God, you know, why, why the world exists at all, uh, what happens after we uh, die. Um, And so my household and my aunts and uncles and grandmas, there were just lots of stories about human values, about ethics, about good human lives, about being an upstanding person, and also a certain amount of um, whatever the Roman Catholic, Irish Catholic version is of hellfire and brimstone stuff. <laughs> um, so I learned a lot about sin, um, uh, hopefully not first personally, but uh, theoretically. And um, so I was, so that was the kind of, you know, household that I was born in. My dad had also gone to college on the GI Bill after the Second World War, and I knew as a little boy, he was very interested in this thing called philosophy. Um, and uh, he, uh, he encouraged me in certain ways. I went to Catholic, to Fordham University, which is a Jesuit college. I never thought about going anywhere but Catholic schools. That was sort of the sheltered world that I lived in. Or I guess I should say my parents never thought of me going anywhere <laughs> other than Catholic schools. But, but that, that hit a... Uh, that hit a, a, a sweet spot in my sort of mind and consciousness because I was very interested in these, what one could think of as theological or metaphysical and ethical questions right from the get-go. And um, 
so um, by the time I got to college, where I did have to still in those days at Catholic universities, you had to take four philosophy classes and some theology classes. And uh, I thought at first, I, I mean, I had no idea that, you know, exactly what philosophy was. But on my first day of class, this giant of a man, he was uh, all but dissertation from Yale, named Ed Reno, and I'm still in touch with Ed Reno. Um, he said, Plato posits the good. I remember he uttered that sentence. And I thought, I have no idea how the definite article got in front of good. And I don't really know what posit means, but I'd like this. I really like this. And so it, it kind of thrilled me in a certain way to think about the big philosophical questions. And I was off to the races. The only thing that almost took me on a different track, though, is that I was also quite interested in science and in particular with psychology. Um, and so I, I didn't quite major in psychology, which in those days I was mostly interested in experimental psychology. But I was sufficiently interested in psychology that some of my psychology teachers were encouraging me to go on in psychology. Anyway, the good news was I was staying in the P's, philosophy or psychology, <laughs> and, um, and I knew I was interested in human nature. So that was kind of uh, my fate was, as it were, kind of settled by uh, being on that track for a really, really long time. And then I went on to graduate school in philosophy. And I remember I've never seen it. I don't know if it exists anywhere. I do remember with some embarrassment what I wrote my essay about. I said I want to understand the nature of the human person. Mm. And, uh, anyway, luckily that didn't put too many places off and I went off to get my PhD. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how I got there. Let me ask you a question around this philosophy or psychology. This book oh. is, is about emotions, not completely uncommon for philosophers to, to get into the study of emotions, but maybe more so uh, the psychology path. How would you say a philosopher maybe views this this research around emotions different from a psychologist? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, so, I mean, I think, of, I think about this question in this sort of way. There are similarities and differences between how we think about these things, of course. Um, so, but I'd like to start when I, when I talk about the connection between philosophy and psychology or even between philosophy and the human sciences, you know, including anthropology and psychology and sociology. The official word was, and I remember learning it when I took a history of psychology course, that psychology as a science begins in 1879 in Leipzig, Germany, when Wilhelm Wundt starts to do what is called brass instrument psychology. He starts to get people to do things like memorize nonsense syllables, and then he sets timers to see how well they remember them, how quickly, how reliably, and so on and so forth. And um, But that's relatively recent, isn't it? If you think about that, the inquiry into the human mind from a scientific or empirical point of view is only 100, and, well, that would make it about 150 years old. So what were we doing before that? Clearly, we that is people in across cultures were inquiring and coming up with theories about human nature, theories about 
what the emotions are, which ones are important in terms of living good human lives, which ones get in our way. And so there's a lot of continuity. So the first point is because of the fact that, you know, philosophy, as it were, yielded eventually uh, a more scientific, empirically focused side to itself, um, uh, there is that. So there is a lot of um, study of the emotions in psychology, neuroscience, and so on. But philosophers, if they want to, are can keep up, as it were, with the results of the hard work that the psychologists do to empirically track these things. I guess that's the way to put it. Mm. Um, and now it requires... Um, it requires paying close attention to what people in psychology and in my case, anthropology now are doing. In other words, I, so I, I don't do any experiments of course, but I'm very, very reliant on people who do careful empirical work. And, uh, and I keep up on that. <laughs> I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, I love that. Appreciate it, Owen. A uh, question as you mentioned, going to this Jesuit institution, everyone being required to take a an introduction to philosophy course, that's new to me, something I, I learned a few months back speaking to another guest um, from, from Notre Dame. But that seems to be a really good idea. Uh, you know, every single student taking a, a philosophy course or a, a few, how do you think that might change you know, an institution like the one that you're at, where every single student at least getting this an introduction to philosophy. Well, it's a really good question, and here, uh, I mean, you, you learned a little bit. It sounds like from your uh, the person you interviewed at Notre Dame. First, let me say a little bit about sort of what happened and why I think it happened that philosophy was reduced even at Catholic colleges because it's kind of interesting, and it has. But your question is an excellent one. Um, and, you know, were I a benevolent dictator, um, I would uh, immediately reinstate certain kinds of courses. And maybe I wouldn't even call them philosophy courses. I might call them things like this would be you could be my PR person courses on wisdom traditions, because that might then feel to people less sort of uh, a disciplinary snatch. So like you asked, so you asked about what would it do to institutions? Well, here's the trouble in modern academy, if you go around and you ask presidents of universities what the mission of the university is, they don't usually have any longer a coherent answer. Mm. Once upon a time, you know, when all the, the great, you know, sort of schools, William and Mary, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, 17th and 18th, 1600s, when they were founded, um, there were missions and all the presidents of those universities were trying to educate sort of whole human beings with the proper ethical orientation. And they were mostly ministers. And, you know, sort of meanwhile, a little later, some, you know, Catholic universities or for, for Jewish uh, pupils, uh, yeshivas would be constructed. They were all in some important sense, parochial and sectarian institutions that were trying to in, introduce people to a distinctive ethical form of life mm. uh, that was at least shared within that sectarian community. So 
inside those institutions, it was just very, very easy to think of what you're learning in, say, four philosophy classes or and, and four theology classes. During the time I was in college, because of uprisings in the 60s, it moved to two and two, I think. And I heard that Notre Dame recently moved from two philosophy courses to mm. one. Or maybe they were thinking about that. I don't know. This is just based on casual conversations with colleagues. Um, but w- what happened really was that um, several different things. One is that uh, the idea of higher education, I think, was uh, more and more uh, uh, thought to involve uh, transaction. It was uh, more career training. I mean, you got to leave the students enough time to study, you know, all good things, computer science or microbiology. And that takes a lot of uh, courses out of your 32. And why privilege any particular set of courses over any others? Mm. But what it means without having, um, and some schools do, for example, Chicago and Columbia do still have what are thought by some people to be sort of conservative curricula, which introduce students to either the wisdom traditions of the West or Columbia now includes at least maybe Chicago does too, wisdom tradition of other cultures, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and things like that. Um, But those are on the one side and most schools have gone to this sort of freed up um, model so there are actually accepted Catholic universities um, where uh, you'll still see the president of Notre Dame or Fordham or Georgetown speak about the purpose of the university as the development of the whole integral human being. And that's talk inside Catholicism for something like developing a well-rounded, spiritually and ethically advanced human being. But it just doesn't float too well in liberal culture. Such an interesting Interesting idea, though. I want to get into this this book that you've written uh, that recently came out, but you you probably wrote it, uh, I imagine, a couple couple years ago. And you write in the book about this mm-hmm. concern of the rise of anger. I'm curious how you how you're feeling today with this book out. Are you are you still equally or or more so concerned about the rise of anger? I am concerned. I'm very concerned about anger. Um, but I might just be a little bit less concerned recently, and I'll be interested in your view about this as a person who's, of course, given your um, career in the military, what you're thinking about what's going on in terms of um, this terrible war in Ukraine bringing people together for the first time in a while. But let me say, if it's helpful, a little bit about what my initial observation was for your audience's sake. So, um the observation just goes like this, that um, I started to think about 10 years ago that I had never lived in angrier times. And given that I'm 73 years old, I've been around a block a little bit. And I did live through very fraught. I've lived through angry times previously, namely in the 60s, uh, which were a time of great social upheaval. Uh, I've never seen as great social upheaval has occurred then until now. Um, but the anger then, uh, you know, is uh, for, on the side of civil rights, women's rights. The Stonewall Uprising was in, 60, in the 60s in Greenwich Village. I was in New York, of course, uh, for gay rights. 
Um, uh, there was a real concern about our democracy and whether or not we had gone to war in Vietnam under pretenses and so on and so forth. So, um, but the anger then, and I worried that I romanticized it too much, was, I thought, anger with great hope um, because uh, we had Martin Luther King Jr. And although he was assassinated in 68, we all knew his promise uh, or it could be his belief. It could be his hope. I don't know how to, you know, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that was, I think, a, so that was a, it was an angry time, but it was a, um, a time where people had focus on good that would come eventually, namely various kinds of justice. I didn't think that the anger was then personal. Um, it was against policies, either Jim Crow South policies or um, uh, possibly Americans fighting a proxy war uh, without sufficient democratic processing behind it. Um, but it wasn't towards particular people. People weren't spewing venom at each other. So what I thought was different about now was just that I thought that um, people were spewing disrespect uh, in atrocious ways that they would never do in sort of, I mean, especially on the internet, you would never do in face-to-face but people were doing things that were just appalling about degrading other human beings, calling them scum. We saw both that Romney and Hillary Clinton were caught out talking about deplorables uh, or, you know, uh, various unworthies. And I just thought that the, the political discourse was going downhill um, quickly, possibly exacerbated, although I'm no expert on this, by what happens on social media, although I'm a little bit aware of that. I mean, I know from Facebook, for example, um, I'm told that I'm you know, lucky not to be part of the Twitter world or these other worlds. But So I just thought there was just so much anger. Uh, no one was listening to each other. And furthermore, we had role models. You know, I was just listening to the um, uh, Supreme Court uh, the hearings for uh, the new Supreme Court justice nominee this morning. And again, the politicians are all just giving these speeches spewing, um, spewing venom. So I was very, very worried about that. So what ended up happening is I just talked to people my age and I would just say, do you think the world is angrier than ever? And almost everybody I asked said, oh, but yes, totally. I've never seen it like this. So, so that led me to be to wonder what does a culture do when it starts to go off the rails in a certain pattern of behavior or emotional expression. And um, uh, I didn't have any great ideas, but one small intervention I had was when I asked people, don't you, you know, my, my friends on the political left would, I'd say, do you think that people are really angry? And they'd say, Oh, yeah, those scumbags on the right, they're really angry. I said, whoa, 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 look what you just said. And they say, oh, yeah, that too. And, and then, of course, people on the right say the same thing about the left. So I, I thought, um, what can we learn from thinking? And I already did this because I do a lot of work with other cultures. I thought sometimes if you think something is normal and natural and you can't see your way out of it, then looking at what other cultural traditions have to say about the thing you're doing can be helpful. It can help you see ways out. Um, so that, that was sort of where I uh, got interested in anger. 
All I was going to add when you asked me, is am I still as worried? Well, the only good news I've been able to discern from this tragedy in Ukraine is, an, is a, a small effect and how long it will last, I don't know, on the American side is that it seems to have reduced sort of angry, polarized, venom skewing towards each other among politicians, at least as regards unity about this war, about which values we're going to protect. So if that's unifying, then usually people who are unified don't get as pissy with each other and divide up into tribes because they're not fully tribal. Yeah, hopefully so. I'm curious, as you were talking about anger and maybe different views and, and opinions on whether anger is a is a good thing, not a good thing, you, you think of, of maybe Stoicism and Buddhism, as you write about in the book, have the a very similar view of, of anger not being a good thing, not a virtue, but a vice. And you're working all these... Uh, you know, across cultures, what it, what is the view on anger across cultures beyond, you know, maybe Stoicism and, and Buddhism, things like that? What I try to achieve in the book is to show some of the variation, you might say. So there's some, just like you uh, were uh, saying, I mean, some of the variation um, that you find in cultural. So one of the themes of my book, maybe it'll help me if I just state this part first, it might help your listeners too. Um, So there's a view of the emotions that I think is empirically and philosophically incorrect, but I get why people think. Okay. And that's the view that emotions are like reflexes. They're like your pupil contractions to light. Or they're like, if the doctor hits the knee in the right spot when she's checking your reflexes, your knee jerks. You have no control over that. It just happens. As it were, you come into the world with a design such that those things will happen. That's the, what you know follows in the people who talk about the, autonom- uh, the autonomic nervous system. You don't have to think to get your heart to pump. Your heart just pumps. Uh, reflex, stomach digests. You don't have to do anything about that, nor can you. Okay. But the, 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 so, and I think there's something right about that view in the following sense. There's got to be some innate scaffolding to emotions because we do see the same emotions in a certain form across cultures. So we see anger, we see angry faces, even we see sadness, we see sad faces, we see surprised faces and so on and so forth. Now, but I think that we underestimate the degree to which the, the the sort of minimalist scaffolding is then built out by particular cultures. And that's where these variations come in. And uh, it's not to deny that there's not something down deep down that is widely shared across humans. Now, so you asked a question about what sort of variation do we see? Sometimes variation comes up as in the case of the Stoic and Buddhist views, which there still are, I mean, there still are some Buddhists, there are 5 million Buddhists in the world, 500 million Buddhists in the world, so that's not trivial. It's, a, you know, one in 16 people. 
Um, and and there are some Stoics, but they're sort of, uh, you know, there's a movement. You must, you know, certainly about the new Stoicism and people trying to live as Stoics. But one of the things I just go to those specific traditions on is that they have really well-worked-out discussions that in one case are 2,000 years old and the other case 2,500 years old, both of which where they identify that anger is a particular emotion that could, really could cause you trouble. Um, it can cause you all kinds of trouble in your interpersonal relationships. It'll poison your own soul if you harbor it too much. And furthermore, both traditions come out and say explicitly the kind of anger to watch out for, or one of the kinds of anger to watch out for, is the anger of the ego. So both those traditions, well, they say two different things. One, actually, they both focus on, the, they, they focus on two aspects of anger that they think are bad. And both of them say the same thing. So uh, the Stoic, Seneca, says this. He says, Aristotle thinks it's okay that if Joshua hurts Owen, uh, you hurt my feelings, I can sting you right on back. It's called, pay, I call it payback anger. Other people do too. Um, he thinks that's appropriate. And then Seneca says, but that doesn't make sense because uh, Plato and Aristotle and, and Socrates taught us that ethics aims at the good. So hurting people is bad. So why would I want to do that? Okay, so the, that's number one. The Buddhists say the same thing because they say once ethical duty is to alleviate suffering in all sentient beings. So if I sting Joshua right back, I'm not alleviating his, his suffering. I'm increasing his suffering. So they both have ethical reasons against anger. They also think that anger um, shows that I have an incorrect view of my place in creation. So this is where the Stoics would say, you know, if you're in, the, if you're in a long line at the Department of Motor Vehicle and you start to get pissy, say this to yourself, be indifferent to indifferent things. Or think back to your study of astronomy. The universe wasn't created for you and to make the lines at the Department of Motor Vehicles or at Starbucks nice and short and convenient for you. It's just that's that's sort of puffing up your own ego. And of course, Buddhists say the same thing, that ego, um, at least sometimes our ego is just way too thirsty and wants stuff. And of course, you know, if I want too much stuff, then I'm always dissatisfied and I'm always angry because I'm not getting what I want. So both of them give, I think, interesting empirical, I mean, because they're social and philosophical observations about how anger can cause us trouble. Now, but that doesn't tell us whether or not there's a lot of variation in the modern world. But the answer is, if you go look at the sort of psychology of these things, you'll see that people do emotions like anger in different ways in different cultures. And so some examples, and you're welcome to uh, follow this up more if it's interesting. Um, some examples go like this. So in American psychology books, standardly, it will say that anger is an approach emotion. And in fact, if you ask Americans what they want, what they feel like doing when they get angry, they'll sometimes say punch you, punch the person they're angry at. Almost no one does that, luckily, but that's sort of, they have an urge. So that's the approach urge. But if you ask Japanese people what they feel like doing when they get angry, they want to leave the room. Mm. 
And in fact, they do leave the room. Um, so it's an avoidance emotion. Now that's kind of interesting because it means that whatever the you know basic scaffolding that Mother Nature gives us for building that emotion, how exactly you enact it or work it out can go in different directions. And people also find that, for example, when American children misbehave or German children misbehave and, and get angry at their parents for not giving them enough of something, that American and German mothers meet anger with anger, but Japanese mothers try to extinguish the behavior by not remotely engaging them. So those are just, you know, all in advanced democracies, but, you know, what the causal reasons for that are, are kind of tricky and complicated. They don't just come from a philosophy or a theology, but there's just cultural practices involved that have people enact their anger in different ways. That's really interesting. I'm curious about, as Seneca talks about this idea of judgment in between there's an event that happens or, or maybe Victor Frankl between stimulus and response, that space where there's a judgment where both of those examples that you're talking about, there is a judgment, but a different path based on what is that views and beliefs? How are they making sense and making different, different choices from that point? Yeah, really good. Well, the language I use in the book which does not entirely answer your question because the answer to your question is a little bit of a mystery to me and it's not well re worked out in the anthropology or psychology um, just because it's so difficult, is this. Part of what just happens, I think, in broadly what we could call moral education is that parents across cultures teach what I call norms and scripts. Now, they don't always give reasons for the norms and the scripts. They may not even know the reasons. It's just a little bit, I mean, take something like this, you know, the parent who says to the child who's being too noisy at the restaurant, use your inside voice. You know, we have a, an idea that, I mean, maybe the child's not crying or anything. It's just talking very loudly. The parent who's doing that, you know, has learned herself or himself that for the sake of, everybody's enjoyment in the diner, it's better if kids are quieter. So they just have a way of expressing that uh, to the kids. And you might say, well, where does that come from? Is that from, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam? I mean, the answer is, well, it's probably just a like, it's like you say, now it's time to learn how to use chopsticks or a knife and a fork. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these things are just deeply embedded in the way people have been doing things for a really long time. And, they're kind of reasonable practices, but we don't always know what their roots are. The one, one thing that I can say is that, you know, um, almost all the Greek and Roman philosophers followed Aristotle in having what was called the doctrine of the mean. Like whenever you do something, get angry, for example, you have to hit the sweet spot between too little and too much. So again, if you and I are having an argument, okay, we know how this goes in human life. There's a point at which either one of us could say to the other, whoa, 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 you're getting way too angry about this, right? And that's that's a, that's basically saying from the way you and I sort of do things, you're you're getting too excessive. You're, you're getting too high. You know, your temperature's up too high. Um, 
in an invitation to come back. Now, what's interesting about that is that there are cultural variation, uh, even subcultural variation. I mean, I grew up in New York, and I therefore know that what seems like rudeness isn't rudeness to New York people. <laughs> Um, uh, it is rudeness, though, to a Midwestern person. It's just like straight shooting to a New Yorker, but it's perceived as rudeness elsewhere. So these things are very, very tricky. I do think, though, that you know, probably in the in the um, in the Japanese case, insofar as Japanese culture has been affected historically by. Confucianism, Shintoism, Buddhism, all those have fairly well worked out views about emotional control that are that may well have sort of seeped in long, long ago in the culture that account for these differences. Because notice, I didn't yet say that I think it's better that the Japanese mothers do what they do. I don't know enough about it, but I just know that they do something different. That enables at least one part of my argument to go through which is that if you say, oh, I get angry in the way I get angry because it's normal and natural, it's like a reflex, then I say, not quite, because there are people who are in the same situation as you are who've been brought up different places that do it differently um, or even think they ought to avoid getting angry altogether because it's really bad to model for children that, they, um, that this is the way to get their way. And there's some good good research on that. Jeannie Tsai, T-S-A-I, who's a um, cultural psychologist at Stanford, has done this wonderful work where she takes the top 10 children's books on Amazon as read in Taipei, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Beijing, New York, New Orleans. And what she does is she looks at and measures the facial expressions and the emotions that are specified as normative in these different children's books. This is important because I hear from people that the main buyers of children's books are grandparents. So this actually is relevant, you know, because you can sort of see how generate. What she finds is that the North American children's books are the only ones in which anger is displayed as a, a reasonable response to frustration. Wow on the part of the kids. And also where what she calls the high arousal positive face of happiness. Usually in these other places, it's not a high arousal. It's a low arousal positive, a more serene and equanimous um, case. So those are, so Joshua, those are kind of the ways I try to get in at least to the argument that if you had reason to think you should adjust or the culture should adjust how it's doing anger. He's, here are some possibilities. A, there are other traditions which say, watch out for this emotion. It can get you in trouble. And B, there are other cultures which seem to have done it a little better. It's fascinating, the the differences, especially the the covers of, of the books. That's such an interesting point. I'm curious, do you ever think about the, the act of or the skill of letting go of some of these deeply held emotions, which some may call forgiveness, um, whatever you, whatever you would maybe label it as, but someone that is in that, that middle point of judgment that is dealing with these 
you know, uh, immense feelings of, of anger. How do you get from that point, you know, and let go of, of some of those deeply held, held feelings to not necessarily uh, act on them? I do think about that. Um, do I have a lot of wisdom about that? I don't know. So the first thing, and this is something that relates back to something you brought up earlier, which is important. Um, so there is a view of the emotions, which, as you pointed out, the Stoics have a strong view that emotions definitely aren't reflexive. Uh, and this, in this way, I'm on the Stoic side. But they have a really strong view that there, that there are judgments. So what's going on in the case of the parent getting mad at the child is the parent judges that the child is angry correctly because it is okay and then they also have to assent to a judgment that my own expression of anger is the appropriate response to make so the idea there is heavily cognitive now i think that there's something right about the cognitive view of the emotions in general uh that has to do with the fact that we learn these norms and scripts we sort of enact them quickly so they can seem like they're not judgy but they really are judgments. You know, the example I use with a different emotion than anger is um, the during COVID, uh, both my children uh, who are grown uh, uh, lost their jobs because of uh, COVID, the first right out of the gate. And luckily they had a father who is able to help them through that tough time. So that was good. Um, but it led me to think about the difference between, as, as it were, fear of unemployment in a country without good social safety net and a country with a good social safety net. I mean, there are some countries like say Finland, where if you did lose your job to COVID, you're immediately taken care of uh, uh, financially, made whole financially. Other cultures have not that at all. So what constitutes danger or what you would judge as danger is just entirely different in both cultures um, because of the, the social context. Now, how does that connect here? Well, you might say, well, there are, if you think about it, conceptually very different kinds of emotional situations you can be in. This has to do with letting go. So the two kinds of anger, I distinguish between a whole bunch of kinds of anger. And there are two kinds in particular that I think reliably show up as not good for you and not good for other people. And those are what I call pain-passing anger, uh, or the first one is payback anger. Payback is just the one I talked about earlier where you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Okay, That, I think, is not good because, well, for several reasons. When I ask my students, are you familiar with episodes where you were trying to pay back someone who hurt you? Boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, mom, dad, whatever. They all say Yes. A lot of those episodes have occurred in my life. And I asked them, well, think about these two questions. How often did you getting into payback mode get you what you wanted? So purely instrumental question. Did you get what you wanted? And then the second question is, did you leave the situation feeling sort of upstanding, morally okay? Or did you descend to a place that you wouldn't, don't approve of going? And reliably, among people I ask this question to, they say, yeah, I hardly ever get what I want. And if I do, because I berated a friend or a loved one, I don't feel good about myself because I said things that I shouldn't have said. So 
that's one kind of anger that doesn't produce the effect that you want. It doesn't, you usually don't behave in a way that you think is morally appropriate. So then what do you do? This is about your letting go question. So one thing you can do there is work on yourself. You could do this by therapy. You could do it by prayer. You could do it by various kinds of meditation to learn how to let the feelings of wanting to see the other bleed a little bit pass because they do pass. When I was a little boy, we used to learn, it seems so precious now, restraint of tongue and pen. This was not that hard to follow in those days because first of all, you didn't mouth off to your parents. But secondly, notice what it meant about the second thing, restraint of mouth and pen. The idea that I was being taught was, if I have something nasty to say to you, but I have to say it by post, in order to say it by post, I have to find an envelope and a piece of paper, a pen, a stamp, and walk to the post office. Well, that that's helpful. <laughs> Whereas in our world, you just I just you know say something awful about you or to you on on the internet. So I think that there are all kinds of good practices that traditional grandma's wisdom, but sometimes contemplative traditions teach in meditation or mindfulness just to not react always to things in the way that you're inclined to act towards. The, the second kind of anger that I think is really um, a problem, uh, I mentioned it probably not enough in the book, is um, what I call pain-passing anger. Pain-passing anger is, I think, a weird cultural phenomenon in America. And it's been encouraged since the late 60s. It, it is by what is uh, a good psychologist, Carol Harvis, calls the ventilationist view. This is the idea that you're entitled to whatever your emotions are. Uh, I can't criticize you for uh, having your emotions. And furthermore, it's good for you to vent them. This results sometimes in, you know, where people are just unpleasant to be around. And you say, did I do something wrong? And they say, no, you didn't do something wrong, but I'm just pissed off today. Well, that's, again, something that it seems to me that we need practices in place such that people understand that they shouldn't be contributing to native atmospheric, uh, negative atmospheres around other people, and they should somehow or other figure out therapies of desire to let those mm. things go. So I think the idea that you could do self-work and that you ought to apply high standards to yourself for the expression of emotions is something what we very, very much need. That then leaves wide open, Joshua, um, allowing for righteous anger against racism, sexism, for all kinds of, because those don't have to be directed at harming other human beings. They can be directed at improving the human condition and ending bad strategies, policies, or so on. They don't need to be personal. And as you mentioned that, just a curious curiosity question, Owen, the idea of righteous anger, you know, is, is that anger or is there a mixture of compassion in action in there? Like it, it seems totally yeah. different than the anger that we traditionally think of to put righteous in front of it and, and call it connected. Yeah, well, good good point. And I wouldn't I wouldn't mind if that got sort of separated out um, as a different kind of thing. In fact, you know, 
I guess this is, by the way, what you're raising is a really interesting and difficult question. Like what falls under anger? So, you know, you start starting at the sort of low end, you might say, is irritability a kind of anger? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Um, the, then when you get to sort of high minded things like anger at say a racist Jim Crow laws, uh, 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 with compassion. I mean, so if you read, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s why we can't wait, you know, he has all this advice in various appendices and different chapters and about how people in the civil rights movement were called upon to, what he would say, purify your soul of anger towards the racist. You actually should have compassion towards him. And I tell the story in my book about when the Dalai Lama, I asked the Dalai Lama about, you know, I said, well, we, where I come from, we believe in a kind of righteous anger that would allow me were I to be, you know, in a park with Adolf Hitler to kill him. And after consulting with these high llamas in his living room, he said, yeah, we think you should kill him too, but you should do it with love and compassion. Mm. And what you're raising is the possibility of a, yes, a beautiful complex emotion, which would be anger at inhumane, unjust practices born of compassion for both the perpetrators and the um, victims of that. And I think that's clearly an ideal sort of state and it starts to lose its maybe it starts to lose its angry qualities. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I think that's such an important point. And speaking of complexity, another emotion that you write about in the book is, is shame. So maybe if, if you could to start, would you mind differentiating between shame, guilt, regret, and things like that? Good. Yeah. Well, this is one, um, you know, and you can tell this since you read the book, I'm a little less confident about than about um, what I say about anger. But I did, again, uh, my interest in shame is not because anger and shame are necessarily closely related. Um, although sometimes shaming and humiliating people is, as it were, done in an angry way. So they are connected in that way. But um, I got interested in this because uh, as I started to think about the emotional health of my world, you know, America in the uh, second century, the, uh, the second decade of the 20th century, I started to also notice at the same time what I took to be, um, I had known this for a long time, that shame has a very bad rap in Western psychology. And usually what the usual distinction that's made is that guilt has to do with feeling bad about actions that you shouldn't have done. So many people analyze guilt as some kind of anger turned inward. So it's a punitive emotion that you turn on yourself for doing a bad thing. You know, and I, again, as a, a little Roman Catholic boy in first grade, I went to my first confession and I was taught that you could number those things. You could say, I didn't share with my sister four times. I lied to my mother two times. So these were acts for which you should feel guilty because they're sins. Shame, it was, it is said, is some kind of uh, uh, negative evaluative attitude towards the self 
that takes the whole person as its object. And um, but I kept in my work on cross-cultural philosophy, I kept noticing that every other culture but my own thought that shame is a good thing um, and that it's not about the whole person. So I started to just look at, because this is my area, what was the evidence in psychology in the West that shame always involved self-loathing? Let me give an example. Like there's a test, actually, uh, the most famous test to um, distinguish between guilt proneness and shame proneness. And uh, so they give, a, they give examples like this. Joshua went into the calculus exam and he hadn't studied uh, and he got a 50. Joshua thinks, number one, it was the weather's fault. That's called externalization. <laughs> Uh, number two, he thinks I should have studied more. That's guilt. Number three, he thinks I'm a worthless piece of shit. That's shame. But when I looked at all other cultures, I thought they never use shame to mean self-loathing. I mean, admittedly, right, it's a ridiculous response for any human being to have that they're a worthless piece of shit. They failed an exam that they didn't study for. <laughs> so we know that. Okay, so... So what I, as I looked into the research, I saw, well, first of all, most Americans, in fact, use shame and guilt as synonyms most of the time. So, for example, you know, you might, if you think about it, when you were a little boy or your own children or anybody's children, you know, parents give instructions about things like, oh, you should share the M&Ms with your sister. I don't want to. I don't want to. You should be ashamed of yourself for not sharing with your sister. Well, they're not inviting you to feel terrible about yourself as a human being. They're just inviting you to think that you should be ashamed for not sharing with your sister. Mm-hmm. So that was the first sort of thing that I noticed about this. And the second thing I noticed is that almost every other culture, except uh, uh, ones in the North Atlantic, but I'm speaking mostly about America, think that shame is a very, very valuable social emotion, that what cultures do is they convey their you know, high ticket or high priced values uh, to children, and they expect you to conform to them. And now, why did I even think that I should take this up? Well, I did notice that there was an uptick in uh, just people saying that um, certain politicians are shameless, that politicians are just saying whatever they feel like. They have no sort of norms of decorum. They don't mind saying false things again and again and again. And in a good society, you should not want to say those things. So I thought that shamelessness was a sign that we didn't know how to think about enforcing high and demanding social norms, particularly around the truth. And it seemed to me that truth was our most recent casualty in a shared American political life. So what I do in that part of the book Um, is try to sort of just work out why I think shame is not the dangerous emotion that you think, although it can be weaponized and is sometimes weaponized when people are shamed. So it's really, really interesting. I was trying to think about situations as, as you mentioned uh, across um, cultures where, where shame might be appropriate. And I was thinking of, um, of the cardinal virtues. If we think of maybe courage, 
maybe universally um, saving a, a baby that was drowning or someone that was helpless in traffic, it would probably be a natural thing at the yeah. end of that to not act with, with courage to feel ashamed. Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. I mean, it is notice. It's about how you displayed a character trait. It just doesn't have to be about you in general. But you would have reason. I, I think that's an excellent example. I mean, were you to sort of completely neglect some duty of courage or benevolence to someone, you know, and you, know, you, know, you, you say, well, I could have saved the child, but I was in my suit on the way to work. And I was waiting for someone else to do it. We would just say, well, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're an adult human being um, and you should be ashamed for not for for not just being motivated by your character to do the right thing there. I think that's exactly right. So the um, one reason there are two, though, objections that people make to what they'll sometimes call shame cultures. One is that. Um, and I understand this. There was a, uh, a ferry with school children on it that sank uh, in Korea a few years ago. Um, and a lot of children died on it. And in the aftermath of that, uh, there were various responses of people at the school. Uh, I think someone committed suicide, a vice principal. All the vice principal, I think, had done was to authorize them to take the trip he didn't have anything to do with the fact that the ship wasn't seaworthy. Um, now, there is in collectivist culture more of a tendency to feel ashamed about things that you didn't, as it were, do yourself. Mm. That's an interesting datum. That's an interesting fact. I, this is where, you know, this is where my philosopher's hat goes off and maybe undue speculation. I do think because in the, in the West, in the Abrahamic traditions, salvation is individual. So you can sort of see why guilt gets its grip, because really, no matter how closely tied I am to other, any other family member, each of us gets saved or not on our own. You know, when you get to the pearly gates, St. Peter says, you either go to the good place or the bad place. He doesn't say you go together with your people, your family. You know, you don't get to be with grandma and mom and dad again just because you want to. You have to show your individual worth. Other cultures do have, A, they don't think about necessarily the good place or the bad place the way people in Abrahamic traditions do. But secondly, they do think sometimes that salvation, even if it's only earthly salvation, is part of a larger community. And I can be... It's personal when people who are part of my close-knit group um, done something wrong or bad, uh, suffer, etc. That's hard for us to understand, yeah. I think, just because we grew up in a different form yeah. of life. Maybe as a way to wrap up, um, I've got a question. I, I heard Sam Harris say something on the, on the Waking Up app connected to anger, but I think it maybe applies to, to shame as well. He was posing the question of how long can one be angry? How long can this emotion last? Suggesting that maybe it only lasts a, a few seconds or a short period of time without 
the getting into some sort of reoccurring thought loop that that continues and maybe that applies to shame as as well of there's some use there but it gets into being not useful if it's just an endless thought loop that continues and continues and you're and you're reliving it any thoughts there owen yeah that's really important i mean and you're right there is a view of the emotions in general which is that Emotional episodes themselves are generally short-lived. It's an interesting, you know, and you know, Sam, of course, is a, uh, a Buddhist practitioner. And uh, he, um, so uh, that's, so that's an important observation. That means that we have some leverage, at least over, that's why restraint of time and pen is good. <laughs> because, in fact, some people have noticed the following fact. I mean, if you you know, if you hurt my feelings yesterday and that's a reason for me to be angry at you, then why just at the end of the week am I not angry at you anymore? Well, it's just time is the only difference. You know, if nothing happened in between, it's just that, you know, our our powerful reactions to things sometimes just do uh, pass away. Now, um, so that's something that, yes, we can leverage by waiting patiently um, uh, for the episode to uh, go over. That said, there are some, um, I mean, so there are two things. One is you might just say, well, there's two kinds of cases though you could worry about. One is the case where, like you described, a person perseverates and just never can forget. You know, you know, you, 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 you know, someone says, oh, remember, you know, Bob from college? And you say, oh yeah. He was my roommate and he used to leave the dishes in the sink all the time. I'm still pissed off. You think, whoa. <laughs> um, so there's, and, and then the person might even say, yeah, I can't stand him. I, you know, and you think, huh, unfortunately, it's, I feel sorry for you that you're in that sort of loop in that zone of things. That seems like you could do self-work. I guess the issues come up that are like this. Acute anger to betrayals or to systematic ill-treatment, those reasons could be there sort of for you, as it were, every day, um, depending on sort of, you know, so so I think we do have to give permission for certain people and for certain kinds of wounds to be the ones that are just existentially extraordinarily difficult to get over or forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, what what to say about that. Yeah. I, I would hate to put all the burden on individuals to do sort of therapy on themselves. Yeah. I knew my great grandfather, and uh, he lived until he was ninety two, and he was a good storyteller. He was a minor American poet. I didn't know my grandfather's, but he used to tell me stories. And one thing he would tell me, because all my people came over in eighteen forty eight and forty nine during the Irish potato famines. And my grandpa, my great grandfather said, we don't like British people. I remember as a little boy thinking I didn't even know what British people were. But uh, and I remember telling my dad years later, he said, oh, I hope he didn't say it the way he usually said it. (laughs) Um, But anyway, but I I came to realize long after the fact that, you know, he, as it were, had what we say is he had a grudge. Mm. Grudges are complicated cognitive, emotional episodes. Um, So I like to think, at least in terms of the sort of Sam Harris kind of point, uh, 
in the Waking Up app is a lot of anger can be stopped early on if you say be indifferent to indifferent things. Of course, well, that's a Stoics phrase, but every tradition has yeah. them. And it's funny to me that little, little things like that can be helpful because <laughs> you say, yeah, I'm taking myself way too seriously. The traffic's not going to move any faster if I get pissed. Right? Uh, I love it. Do you have time for a, a quick wrap-up question on uh, on thoughts on wisdom? The the question is: sure. How do you define or or think about wisdom in daily life today, Owen? Well, what I think about when I think about wisdom, this is a sort of a down-to-earth uh, answer from my life as an educator. We are so present-oriented. Um, in the modern world, thinking that uh, that inclines us to think that um, if there are solutions to sort of the great problems of life, like how do I find meaning and purpose? Um, how do I give? A, how am I a good friend to people? Um, how you know ought I to live in community? Should I have children or not? Should I? I think that young people are encouraged to think that they better keep up with whatever the research from last Thursday is, you know, what, what is, what are they saying in neuroscience or what does the New York times, you know, Tuesday science section say about healthy relationships. And I think there we miss out on the fact that there really is great historical wisdom across all different cultures to the great problems of living um, that gives very, very sophisticated, thoughtful answers. So, what I often tell my students is that we're not going to read Confucius and Buddha, Plato, Aristotle, Stoicism. We're not going to learn about other cultural traditions just because we're curious in the National Geographic way or tourist magazine way. These cultures hit upon major contenders for really good thinking about deep human problems. I mean, you mentioned Viktor Frankl earlier. I mean, he's also someone who sees clearly, maybe because he's just brilliant, caught in a terrible situation and he survives it, that he was able to give us wisdom. But some of that wisdom also is a recreation of wisdom that, you know, ancient cultures thought about. And I'm not saying that, you know, we should give up on new knowledge, but the modern university, one thing all those college presidents will say is that about a modern research university is that the modern research university is devoted to the production of new knowledge. But that actually weights things in favor of producing new knowledge as opposed to transmitting wisdom of the ages. So this is why I still, as much as I'm interested in cutting edge knowledge in psychology, neuroscience, anything else, I do think that we would be um, uh, would be unfortunate for our students not to prepare them to understand and have assimilated and be able to transmit themselves some of the wisdom of the ages, what great thinkers have thought over long periods of time. I told my students, by the way, this semester, it's, it was fun. They said uh, when we were reading, uh, we were reading in a world philosophy class, I'm teaching both Plato and Confucius. And, um, I one day said to them, did you notice that they both have a certain attitude about 
uh, what you as a young person are supposed to do. And one student had picked it up and it was this. Both of them say, until you're 40, shut up and listen. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I teased them that that was, but there is something about, you know, the energy of youth of thinking you're solving all the problems anew. Well, if you listen for a long time, you'll see that there's a lot of good thinking that is out there from the past. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And again, uh, for the listeners, reminder, the book is How to Do Things with Emotions. Owen Flanagan, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I'm truly grateful. Thank you, Joshua. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.